Welcome to the Different Functional Podcast. I am Autumn, the older sister, and my favorite number is eight. Um, I also enjoy the number zero and one, but I only like all of these numbers individually because if any of these numbers are drawn correctly, they are symmetrical top to bottom and side to side, and that makes me really happy, the symmetry. So yeah, my favorite number, eight. And I am Ivy, the younger sister, and we did not realize this until today, but both of us have the same favorite number because my favorite number is also eight. And it just goes to show you can spend your, literally your entire life with somebody as I have with Autumn and not know that you share the same favorite number. And part of the reason I like the number eight so much is for very similar reason, because I really like symmetry as I noted in a previous episode with my tattoos, how it's bugging the shit out of me that I only have one half sleeve because I always get my tattoos in pairs. So I like eight also because it's very symmetrical and it's drawn correctly. It's also like the infinity symbol, but on its side and the infinity symbol is pretty cool too. Anyway, but that has nothing to do with my fact. My fact has nothing to do with numbers whatsoever. My fact is that when I was little, Anytime somebody asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I always said, I'm going to be a horseback rider because I thought in my little three-year-old brain that just riding on horses was a profession that people would just pay you to get on a horse and ride around. Um, but And that would be fine because three-year-olds have a beautiful view of the world sometimes, except as an adult, even now, I'm 34 years old, I've never been on a horse <laughs> In fact, I've only interacted with the horse, I think, twice in my whole life. And it was mostly just petting them on the nose and being like, hi, horsey. And that was like, that was it. So I thought when I was three, I was going to be a horseback rider. And it's somewhat embarrassing as an adult that I have never been on the back of a horse. And I was so determined to be a horseback rider and get paid for it as a child. <laughs> so, okay, I, I have actually been on a horse once. And I was I was not a fan of horseback riding. Like, I enjoyed being on the horse and I enjoyed the horse itself, but the person I was with that was trying to teach me to ride, they were all, you've got to tell the horse where to go. You've got to use the range. You've got to direct the horse, you know, use your knees, tell the horse where to go. And I'm like, this horse is four times my size. And out of its decency, it's deciding to drag me around on its back. <laughs> I'm not going to tell the horse where to go. If it wants to wander over to the ditch and eat flowers for 30 minutes, I'm going to let it. I don't feel comfortable telling this horse what to do. I think I would probably, in all honesty, have the same issue because I would feel guilty that the horse was doing all the work and I feel like I was taking advantage of said horse. And I would be like, where would you like to go, horse? So <laughs> I would have a difficult time giving it guidance and orders as well. Uh, it's pretty obvious that neither of us grew up on a ranch. And it is very obvious that even though I desperately wanted to be a horseback rider as a profession, I would be terrible at it. And I'm sure nobody would pay me to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think too many people actually get paid to ride horses specifically anyway. So I wouldn't feel too bad on that. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I, I know that there are professions that riding a horse is part of the work, but I don't, yeah, I don't think any 
Buddy really gets paid to just like leisurely ride a horse around, which is what I had in mind as a child. Just like, I'm just going to spend all day on a horse. Just, you know, just meandering and, and people will pay me to do that because I'll be up there on that, on that horse. <laughs> Probably because it was such an intimidating thing. You should have been paid. So obviously we did not grow up on a ranch or a farm or near ranches or farms that had horses that we could ride what we did grow up though in was a dysfunctional home environment a traumatic home environment and that's my segue today we're going from ranches to traumatic homes so yay segues <laughs> we did grow up in a traumatic home and so our topic of the day is one ivy and i have actually been tossing around and wanting to do for a while now and it's things you hear growing up in a traumatic home or in a dysfunctional family that just drive you nuts, just things you hate. You hear them again and again and again throughout your childhood. And maybe they annoyed you when you heard them and you were young, or maybe they annoy you now looking back, or maybe they annoy you both. But they just get so fucking old and you wish people would stop saying them because you're so tired of hearing them. So that's our topic today. 10 things that Ivy and I hated hearing when growing up. All right, Ivy, start us out with number one. So the first one that I think pretty much anybody can relate to if you grew up in a home somewhat similar to ours was you're too mature for your age. Said with equal amounts of condescension and pity, I guess. <laughs> I always hated hearing that. Uh, I still hate hearing that. Um, it happens less now because now I'm in my 30s and when you get into your thirties, people start treating you like an adult, which is pretty nice. I've waited my whole life for somebody to just treat me like an adult. But yeah, hearing that you're too mature for your age. I, I know for me, a lot of it came from people thinking of me as being precocious because it was like, oh, you, you shouldn't know about those things yet. Like I didn't really understand at the time why they were reacting to me in that way. What do you mean I'm not supposed to know these things? What do you mean I'm not supposed to know about sex? What do you mean I'm not supposed to know about like relationship dynamics? What do you mean I'm not supposed to know about this or this or this because I just know these things? Isn't that normal? What context did you get it in, Autumn? Well, for me, the, the part that annoys me the most about that was the two. You are two mature for your age. Because my role in the family was to take care of everything. You know, I was making sure that you got fed and went to school and did your homework. I was taking care of our mom. I think at the time, we had anywhere between 15 to 30 dogs, 15 to 30 cats. We had birds. We have hedgehogs. You know, there was my older brother. There was dad. I was buying the groceries. I was making the food, doing laundry, doing housework. I was taking care of everything in the house. And people were telling me I'm too mature for my age. And I hated that because I was like, no, I am the exact amount of mature necessary to make sure that not only I survive, but everybody in this household survives. So no, I'm not too mature. I'm mature enough. And it also really annoyed me too, because it was like I had a choice in that. Like I just decided, you know, I woke up and I was like, hey mom, hey dad, don't worry about being adults. I'd like to do that from here forward as a 13 year old girl. I didn't do that. It wasn't a choice. I needed to survive. I needed to make sure you survived. So I step up and did what had to be done. So there was no too mature. I was the only mature person in that household for the most part. I was the only person doing what needed to be doing until you got onto your feet and you're like, oh shit, I should probably do this too. 
and, and so for me, it was, I am the right amount of mature. And so it drove me nuts because there was no such thing as too mature. Like I had taken too much. On your end of it, though, what you were talking about, the knowing too much, I ran into a lot of that with when I worked in mental health with the kids. And it drove me nuts on that end because so many of the therapists and the caregivers and the foster parents and the guardians that had stepped in, they all of a sudden wanted the kids to forget all of this stuff. You know, forget that you'd been exposed to sex. Forget that you knew how to cook and take care of your brothers and sisters. Forget that you knew how to balance household finances, even though you were 12. It, It didn't work that way. You can't, what is that, that phrase about, you know, shutting the barn door after the horses have bolted? It doesn't work that way. Once you know this stuff, you know it. And so I always thought it was very punishing and undermining to a lot of the kids I worked with that all of a sudden, even though you knew all this, oh, well, that's that's not for your ears. That's for adults. So we're just going to not do that anymore. You can't not. Once you have that information, you use it. You know it. It's part of your life. It's part of who you are. And so I always hated on that account, too, because I felt like it seriously undermined a lot of these kids because you can't unknow any of this. So now you, what you needed to do was accept it and figure out how to help the child deal with that knowledge and use that knowledge healthily in a way that wasn't going to damage them further psychologically, that wasn't going to damage them in trying to make social connections, but figure out how to use it and not just try to shove it into this little box like it wasn't a thing, like they could just shut it off. Because you can't do that with that maturity. Once you have that maturity at that age, I don't think, I mean, maybe you can, maybe, but I, I find it very hard to just turn it off. Even if you got outside of an environment where you didn't need to survive, I don't know how you could just turn it off. I don't think you can. I don't think you can turn back time like that. Once you know something, you can't unknow it. And once you've been forced to grow up, like you can't really go back to being a child. You can try, you can play the part of being a child, but it doesn't work. When I was 16 and I moved in with our aunt, and I really appreciated this about our aunt Rita was that she, I mean, she'd also grown up in the abusive home life too. And so she understood that at 16, after everything that I'd been through, I was not really a child anymore. In some ways, my awareness of the world was childish because I didn't have a lot of like the life experiences of having been in relationships and worked and had to pay my own bills and like things like that. But in a lot of ways, I had had to grow up so fast that like she couldn't treat me like she would a typical 16 year old. And so I always appreciated that she really tried to balance things and still trying to give me structure and discipline and all of that, but also trying to understand that I was not a typical 16 year old and that there was no way to turn back time. And I think it's what you were saying with how it was kind of treated in the mental health field. Like it really shows and highlights that stigma that there is around dysfunctional families and abuse and mental health things and all of that because it makes people uncomfortable. You see a kid who is too mature, if you want to call it that, and you know that they've been through some shit because if they hadn't been through some shit, they wouldn't know those things. They wouldn't do those things and say those things because they'd be a kid and they wouldn't have that as part of their lexicon. That wouldn't be part of their life experience. So it makes people uncomfortable because they know that child's been through some things. And so I think some of it is driven by like this guilt because in our society, we're like, oh, we really have to work on protecting kids. But what happens when that protection fails a lot of times is it's 
oh, well, now it's too late. Well, let's move on to protecting the next kid. And they don't really know what to do with kids who have had to grow up too fast. And I think there's this like societal guilt of, oh, we failed to protect this child, but I don't want to deal with that guilt. And it makes me uncomfortable to know that this child was not protected and I don't know what to do with them now. So I will either try to shove them into this box of, okay, well now you can be a kid. So you're going to be a kid and I'm going to treat you like a kid, or it's writing them off as damaged goods and moving on to the next kid that they could protect. That's what it's always felt like to me. For me, the, the part that I had the hardest time with as far as being treated as though I knew too much and I was too precocious is that, especially when it came to sex, I had too much of an understanding about sex at too young of an age. And even when adults around me would recognize that, nobody asked any questions. And looking back now as an adult, knowing what I know, if I encountered a child saying and doing some of the things that I did, it would be a huge red flag to me that it, there, it was a high likelihood that there was some sort of abuse going on. And I've mentioned in, I think, a previous episode that in a lot of ways, because my, my father was always trying to kind of pit me against my mom and pit my mom against me, one of the ways he tried to do that was treating me more like his wife than his daughter. And that gave me very confusing messages about relationships, very confusing messages about sex and intimacy and all of those things. And nobody ever asked. They just either, they treated it as, oh, you're a precocious little one. And it was said kind of playfully, or it was, oh, no, 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 no. children don't talk about those things. You're too young to know about that. But nobody asked any questions at all. So I think there is a huge guilt aspect there of, oh, we failed to protect this child. So we're either just going to try to force them to act like a child now, or we're going to pretend that nothing's going on, or we're going to write it off as, oh, well, it's too late for this one. And I think I think you take a little bit nicer view of humanity than I do. And I think a lot of it just comes down to people being uncomfortable and operating on autopilot. We all have these expectations of roles that people should play, these scripts that should, they should have. It's one of the reasons, you know, one of the first questions when somebody has a baby, is it a boy, is it a girl? They want to know because they need to know that information so they can process how to react to it because we have roles and expectations around gender and we have roles and expectations around kids. And when kids defy those, it upsets that social script. We feel uncomfortable. And because culture is that driving force, it forces us to want to put that kid back in the role that they should be in, in our minds. And so it undermines their entire experience. And I'm sure there is some guilt out there, but again, you take a much nicer view of humanity than I do. And, and I think with that though, Another one that they do for that, this, and this is the second one we're going to talk about, is when you're older, then you'll understand. And I think this one is very, very much undermining. The first one's almost insulting or judgmental, but this one's undermining. So they go and say, oh, you're too mature for your age. And so they're acknowledging at least that you have understanding, that you have this knowledge, that you're being responsible. But then you'll also hear with this, but when you're older, then you'll understand because you don't really understand what's going on. You're only a child. You don't know enough. And I think this is how people go about undermining so that they can feel more comfortable. Now, I'm not going to say this isn't totally true because looking back, you know, as a 40 year old, I can see that I didn't know a lot of things that I should have known at 13. But when you come in telling me that I don't understand simply because I am young and you offer nothing else with that, 
you offer no other insight. You're just saying, oh, you're too young. You're, you're not going to get it. What I hear is you're completely undermining all of my experiences. You're undermining all of my knowledge. You're undermining all of my responsibility. At which point I have to choose and either say, okay, either I'm fucking insane and I don't have any concept of myself, which is going to be very destructive and hard on me, especially given the environment I came from, or I'm going to have to believe you. And so usually what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose to believe myself, in which case, no, I fucking understand it. I get it. You're the one that doesn't understand. And so that idea of when you're older, then you'll understand that one also drove me nuts as well. That one really bothered me too. Uh, and that caused a lot of conflict for me with adults because, because of our parents and how irresponsible they were and how they did not really act like adults. When somebody would say, you're too young to understand, it would be infuriating to me because in my mind, Adults didn't fucking understand because my experience had primarily been with our parents as far as who adults were. No, I think adults are the ones who are fucking dumb because I feel like I understand perfectly well what situation I find myself in here and what I need to do with it. And it was also kind of for me as I got a little bit older and into my teen years, it was I don't want to hear what you have to say. I'm going to make whatever choices I'm going to make. And if those are mistakes, then I want to learn from my own mistakes. And I don't trust you to guide me. I've not been able to trust adults to take care of me or guide me or provide me with anything useful or even to act like responsible adults. So I always found it really infuriating when people would say, oh, you're too young to understand because I felt like I was surrounded by inept adults who thought that that they knew better than I did when, when to me it was really obvious that they didn't. And the other thing that bothered me about it, and I didn't really think about this until yesterday, I was talking to a client of mine kind of about this sort of topic of things you hated hearing as a kid. And she mentioned that one of the things she always hated hearing and she still hates hearing when people say it to kids now is, oh, when you get into the real world, you'll understand that really struck me when she said it. She was really angry and animated as she was saying. And she's like, I always hated hearing that because who the fuck are you to tell me what the real world is? I am in this world. This is my reality. This is real to me. And these are real issues. And these are real problems. And this is real abuse. And this is real trauma. And you're trying to tell me that what I'm experiencing is not real. And that I won't know what real is until I have to have a job and pay bills and that sort of thing. That is a version of reality. But to tell a child that you're not going to understand anything until you're in the real world, that is really invalidating when that child is going through a lot of trauma at home. Because that trauma at home is very, very real, not just to them, but objectively real. The part that annoyed me about that, too, is that a lot of times the adult or the individual saying it would not follow it up with trying to help you understand. They wouldn't offer any any more information. And sometimes it's not possible because, again, I said, looking back, you know, with a 30-year split between me and my 10-year-old self, I could get that I didn't know a lot of stuff because I hadn't been through the experience. But there was also a lot of times where an adult could have helped me understand and they could have told me more information. But because I was a kid, I wasn't supposed to know it. Okay, that ship has sailed. It's gone. I know shit I shouldn't know. 
So now, if you want me to understand why this decision is bad, you need to give me the appropriate information. So if I went through a, a sexually traumatic childhood, which, which I didn't, but I worked with a lot of kids that did, and then you're trying to get them to make healthy sexual choices or choices that are going to protect them sexually in their life, both psychologically as well as physically. And you can't just tell them, oh, when you're, when you're older, you understand. No, they already know about sex. I don't care that they're six or eight or 14 or whatever age you think is too young. They know about it firsthand. You don't get to pretend they don't. And so now keeping this other information away from them because they're not old enough doesn't serve them. If there's an opportunity to give that child that information, give it to them. If they already know what sex is at six and you're trying to explain healthy relation dynamics and healthy sexual choices, then you give them that information. You don't just say, oh, well, you're too young to know about it. They already know. So help them deal with that information by informing them. And again, that's not something you can always do because sometimes it just does take years and experience. But like Ivy said, with a lot of that too, when you grow up in a dysfunctional traumatic home, you look around at the people that have experience and they're fucked up. You know, they're on drugs, they're in prison, they're getting into fights, they're abusing you, they're not able to function on a daily basis that's not really people you're going to listen to. You're not going to look at them and be like, oh, they've got their shit together. I should, I should listen to what they're saying. No, you're thinking nobody has a fucking clue in my life. If I'm going to figure it out, I'm going to have to do it on my own because all you see around you are, are the stories of what you shouldn't do. And so when that shouldn't do story comes up and tells you what to do, that's horribly, horribly frustrating because they don't know. You have got to figure it out for yourself. At least that's the perspective I came from. And that, that leads into our number three one. And this one, more than anyone on the list, this made me angry. So I was a really compliant child. I was a people pleaser. I was usually going to be very polite. I wasn't going to be directly confrontational, oppositional with anybody as a kid. But when you did this with me as a child, I lost my shit. And this was, let me tell you what you need to do. So that idea, again, every adult around you is not able to function. Every adult around you is fucked up. You are the one dragging the household forward. You are the one that is responsible. You are the one that is feeding people and making sure that bills get paid. And then one of these fucked up adults comes in and tries to set a rule or tries to tell you what you need to do. I, I lost it. We actually had because again, our father was such a great man. He had one of his very dysfunctional patients living with us and helping to babysit and raise us. And so I was, I think, 14 or 15 years old at the time. This person's living in our garage, not functional enough to maintain a job, not functional enough to basically do anything with his life, which nothing against that. But then he's coming in and he's trying to set standards for me. He's like, well, you should really be in bed by nine. And I really think you should be eating this for dinner. And I lost it with that. I really did. Of course, because I was already uber responsible, what I did was I said, you do not get to tell me what to do. You are not responsible enough to take care of yourself. So you do not get to speak to me. And I actually sat my father down and was like, you need to tell your patient to get the fuck out of my life. I am raising your daughter. I am taking care of 
are my mother, your wife. I am taking care of this whole household. I am getting up at 5 a.m. to make sure everything gets done that needs to get done. I have given up my life. I have given up my personality. I have given up school. I have given up every social connection possible to take care of this household. Do not let that fucking man tell me what to do. And I lost it because I was being responsible. I was really literally getting up at 5 a.m. every day to make sure everything that could get done did get done so that everybody was fed and everybody was safe and everybody was okay. So when you're in that position as a kid and you're the one being responsible and you have an adult come in and tell you, oh no, let me tell you what you need to do. I, it does make you irate. And I totally get it. I saw that again and again with the adolescents, even when you get into safe environments or foster homes. No, no, there is no trust in adulthood. There is no trust in caregivers. There is no trust in anything you have to tell me. So don't you even fucking dare tell me what to do. Did, did you come up against that one, Ivy? I mean, I came up against that more as I got into my teen years, especially when I was living with our aunt, right? I, I really appreciate her so much and everything that she did, but it was like, that was one area where we did have conflict because she saw what I was up against. And to her credit, she wanted to stop me from making the mistakes that she saw me about to make. But I was not in a space where you could tell me what to do anymore. And a big part of that was because I had zero trust in adults. And it was every time that I would look at the adults around me, I would see all of the things that they did wrong. And then they'd be telling me, oh, don't do this thing. I did this thing, learn from my mistake. And in my mind, it was, you're not even fucking learning from your mistakes. You've given me zero reason to trust your guidance at all. And you're trying to tell me what I need to do with my life. It's too late for that. If you wanted to give me guidance, y'all should have done that when I was young. Because even though I'm 16, I still feel like I'm like a 50-year-old woman because of all the stress and trauma and abuse. So no, you've given me no reason to trust you. I do not trust anybody. And to this day, I still don't trust people. And it still makes me angry when people come to me with, you need to do this. No, you better phrase that as a fucking request. I don't know that that's something that's ever going to change in me because I had no trust in anybody and I still don't have trust in people. And I don't feel like it's anybody's place to tell me what I need to do because I've had to make most of my decisions on my own and I will happily live with the consequences of my choices. And I have made mistakes and I have repeated some of the mistakes of my parents, but I don't regret those things because at least I made those decisions for myself. At least I had autonomy in that. And so I, I always hate when people tell you, this is what you need to do. You have to do this. No, I fucking don't. And no, you don't know what I need to do. You may have snippets of the picture, but you don't have the whole picture. And it's not your place to tell me what I can and can't do or what I should and shouldn't do with my own life. Prove to me that I should have some reason to trust you first at the very least. And then I'll take into consideration what you have to say. But unless you can do that, I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to listen. That's like an automatic thing for me that really sets me off. Is that for the best? In a lot of situations, it's definitely caused some issues for me. And yeah, being headstrong has not always worked out in my favor, but I would still rather be that way because 
I still, it, it, they just don't feel like other people can even be trusted completely with their own lives. I don't think anybody really knows what the fuck they're doing. <laughs> I don't think anybody does either. And, and this is another one I saw a lot, again, working with those kids in mental health. This was one you ran into a lot when the kid got taken out of a of a traumatic or abusive environment and they actually got put somewhere safe and the new guardians or the foster parents or whoever it was happened you know to be with the kid now they were trying to set rules and the kid was rebelling and they couldn't figure it out a lot of times i really 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 saw this very frequently with caregiver children and these were kids i really related to because that was the role i ended up in so this is the child that's taking care of the baby brother or the baby sister and they didn't want to relinquish that control and the parents couldn't get it because like hey you finally get to be a child well again like we talked earlier that that ship has sailed no i don't i i already know too much one and the second thing too is is you've got to really think about where they came from so what happens for them and what their reality was is if mom said oh, you don't worry about your baby brother, I'll take care of him. When they trusted mom in that, what they did was they came home from a friend's house and the baby brother had not been fed all day. He had been laying in his diaper that was dirty. He had rashes, he was crying, and mom was passed out drunk on the couch. And now the kid not only had to get the kid fed, she also had to deal with the tantrums because the kid was upset. She also then had to deal with the physical ailments of the kid being in the diaper all day and had to clean up the mess and likely had to clean up the house because the mom had made a mess. So when they failed to trust the adult and when mom said, oh, I'll take care of your baby brother, you go have time at your friends. And they said, no, mom, it's OK, I'll get it. They didn't have to do as much because that point they had taken care of and changed their brother. So there were no additional physical ailments. They had made sure that the brother got fed on a regular basis. So the little kid was not throwing tampered, temper tantrums. And because they were there to clean up mom's messes as she made them, they didn't have to clean up an entire house or pick up spilled booze bottles or vomit off of the floor because they were able to get their mom to the toilet. When you failed to trust the adult in your life, life was easier because you trusted yourself to take care of the situation. And when you did trust the adult, life was much harder because not only did you then have to deal with the situation, you had to deal with all of the fallout from somebody neglecting that situation. So if you've not been through a traumatic home, or dysfunctional family, and you do find yourself in that role of caregiver, was like, why is this kid not listening to me? Why won't they relinquish control? That's why, because never in this life has it been proven safe to trust a caregiver, to trust an adult, to look out for your best interests. The only individual you have honestly been able to trust is yourself, possibly your siblings, depending on what was going on. You're asking them to trust you when nothing in their life has ever told them that they could. What if I told you, oh, you could fly. You just have to jump off the top of your roof. You just have to believe it. Just believe you can fly and jump off of the top of your two-story house and you'll fly. Are you going to do that? No, because every single experience in your life has told you what's going to happen is you're going to fall to the ground and at best break bones and at worst kill yourself. So you're not going to do that. And that kid is in the exact same position. You're telling them, trust me, I will keep you safe. Everything in their life has told them, no, you're going to make things worse. You're going to fuck it up. Let, just let me do this. And that is one of the things that I absolutely loved about our mother as we 
got older is she very, very much acknowledged that she had fucked her life up and she had fucked us up. And so she never came across as, let me tell you what I need to do. So if I was in a situation where I was struggling or I was in a situation where I was going to make a stupid decision, she would very much be upfront and say, I don't have a right to tell you what to do. I fucked my life up or I wasn't the mother I should have been. But with my perspective in life, I do want to share something with you. I do want to share the experience I had from making bad decisions. Can I do that? And she asked permission to share that. And when she did that, I was very much receptive to that because I saw where she was coming from. She wasn't saying, oh, this is what you need to do. She was saying, hey, I have some information from having previously fucked things up that maybe you might want to listen to. So you could avoid fucking things up, but it's up to you. And when she said it that way and when she voiced it that way, I was so much more receptive to it because I got what she was doing at that point. She wasn't trying to control me. She was just trying to give me knowledge so that I could continue to make my own choices. And so I really loved my mom about that. I experienced a lot of that same thing with mom. And it's, it is one of the main reasons that I was able to forgive her for everything is because she did not stop caring. She did not stop loving us her way of showing her care and her love was to say, I fucked up and I'm in no position to tell you what you should be doing with your life. But may I tell you this experience I had, or may I offer this suggestion? I really loved that about mom too. And to some degree, like I, I look back to that period of time that I was living with Aunt Rita. And I, again, I give her so much credit for being <laughs> thrown into the situation that she was, she did is, good a job as she could with the rebellious child that I was and understanding that I wasn't going to be like a typical 16 year old and she couldn't really parent me still trying to give me that structure and everything and then looking back on it now I, I have quite a bit of respect for how she ultimately ended up handling it one of the reasons I ended up not staying with her until I had reached adulthood was because I got in a relationship with a guy who was like four years older than me and I was convinced that this was the only person that was ever going to love me and that I would love this person forever. And my aunt Rita, cause she had been married very young and had kids very young and she'd had some bad experiences with that. She tried to guide me based with, on her own experiences. And I, I just railed against it. Cause in my mind it was like, yeah, well you fucked up. So why should I trust you? And she really wanted to protect me from what she saw as being a mistake and ultimately it was not the best choice. I can definitely see the wisdom in what she was trying to tell me now, but her way of dealing with that situation was basically, if you want to make that decision, I can't tell you no, but I can't have you live here and condone the decision that you're making when I feel that it's so detrimental to you in the long run. If I didn't have someplace else to go, I'm sure she would never have said that. But because she knew that I had, I did have options. There were other places that I could go and she was trying her best to guide me. And I think in her mind, she was really hoping that I would realize pretty quickly that I was making a mistake and that I would come back and live with her because she left that door open. She told me multiple times before I moved out, if you want to come back, you can come back. I just can't condone this choice. 
and I can't be part of it. So I do appreciate that she tried to balance those things because it's it, like what Autumn was saying with those, you know, taking in a, a child who has had to grow up really fast, has had to take care of themselves and be responsible. You can't treat them like a child. It's beyond that point. You have to find some way to balance giving them structure and giving them support and giving them love, but not trying to shove them into being a child because they're just not anymore. And I think that goes right into the next one on our list, which is number four, you'll regret not being a child. And this gets said in a lot of different ways. And a lot of times it's, you should go to high school or, oh, don't worry about this. You should be playing or you should be doing something age appropriate, however that happens to be phrased. The basic message is you're going to regret not being a child. You're going to regret not doing age appropriate tasks. This one I feel is not so much undermining. I think this is said by by caring people that really want that child to have that experience, that understands how precious childhood is and how important the adolescent experience is to forming your identity, who really have an understanding of this and want that child to be able to experience. And so they say this, but the problem is they're not understanding that, as Ivy said, it's too late for that. You know, what you know, you know. What you've been through, you've been through. The trust issues you have, you have. And we're not saying this can't be repaired and, and the kid can't find some happiness and they can't learn to trust again. That all can happen. But they're never going to be a child in the same way. And especially, especially, especially if this happens later in the childhood towards adolescence, it's going to be extremely, extremely difficult. So the high school experience was one, both me and Ivy, we got told, you know, you need to, you should have the high school experience. This is something you should do. For me, that was quite literally impossible. It was my parents that pulled me out of high school. My father that lied to the Missouri Board of Education saying I was being homeschooled when I was not. So this wasn't an option for me. But I was often told by others, oh, you, you should go to high school. You'll regret it. You, Honestly, because of the amount of trauma I was in, I don't know if I could have endured high school. And this was a tiny high school. I mean, we're talking a 200-person town. Your average graduating class was like 10 people. But that was so much stress for me, the, the social fitting in and trying to figure all that out. So a lot of times, because you have been through that, the idea of being a child, one, is not really possible because you are so much adult and you do so, so much. And two, it doesn't work well because... You no longer fit in with those experiences. I'm not able to be this child because I'm already ready for life. And I've seen that a lot with adolescents who get so fed up with high school. And it's not necessarily because they don't want the education or they don't want to go to college or they don't want whatever that is. They're already adults. They already know how to pay bills. They already know how to work a job. And they would just rather be let do that. Dropping out of high school was to avoid more trauma, to be perfectly honest. I got bullied a lot because I, when our father kicked us out, we went from that super tiny town to a much bigger area, or I went to a much bigger area and a school that was so huge that I was worried about being able to get to my next class on time and being able to figure out where each of my classes was. And there were so many people. I went from a graduating class of like 20 to 25 people to going to a graduating class of a few hundred people. And I'd been so socially isolated and I'd been bullied a bit anyway, even in our small town, because I 
was socially isolated in and out of school a lot. Nobody really taught me how to like have proper hygiene and change your clothes and do all of those things. And so I already had been experiencing some of that bullying. I was already a shy and introverted kid and really awkward. And then being plopped into this huge school with all of these people, I felt like if I stayed in high school, I would not live. I would not live to see my senior year. Not necessarily that somebody would kill me, but that I would kill myself. It was just piling trauma on top of trauma and I couldn't handle it. And my way of dealing with it when I was still at school before I was able to drop out was that I did not make any friends. I didn't speak to anybody. I didn't let anybody get close to me. I assumed everybody that approached me did have an ulterior motive because that had been my experience so far was that all of them did. There was no trust there and I really was fearful of everybody. And so I didn't speak to anybody. I didn't make any friends. And I intentionally tried to make myself seem like the crazy kid. That was the only way that I could see to protect myself was to come across as you probably shouldn't mess with this kid too much because she's a loose cannon. As soon as I moved in with my Aunt Rita and I was given the option to drop out and take my GED, I absolutely did. And I took my GED when I was 16. It wasn't a matter of not caring about the education aspect. It was that I could not handle the social aspect of being in high school. I could not handle having that trauma on top of my family trauma. It was too much. And I was convinced that if I did not get out, I would kill myself. And I'm still convinced of that. Even though my aunt understood, we were active in church. And so many people at church, when they found out what I was doing, they'd be like, oh, no, you need to go back to high school. You need to be with your peers. You're going to miss not having gone to prom, you're going to regret not graduating with your peer group. You're going to regret all these things. You really need to go back to school. Being a high school dropout is not good for you. You're never going to go anywhere with your life and you're going to miss out on all of these wonderful experiences. And it made me so angry because I thought you have no fucking clue. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know who you're talking to. You have no idea what I've been through. Shouldn't it fucking tell you something that I'm living with my aunt? That I don't even live with my parents or speak to my parents? Shouldn't that tell you something? You have no idea and you need to shut up. And to this day, like I'm not a big I told you so person, but there is a tiny part of me that would love to go back to all of those people and be like, you know what? I never fucking regretted it. Not once. I never regretted not going to high school, going to prom, graduating with my peer group. It doesn't fucking matter. If a kid wants to do those things, great. Finish high school, the traditional route, do the extracurricular activities, do all that stuff. If it's fun for you, if it's something that you enjoy, but forcing kids to take that route and not giving them any other option, I think that's really cheating kids out of some opportunities to do something that might be better for them. Going through high school traditionally is not always the answer. And for some kids, that could be something that causes them to kill themselves at some point or gets them bullied so bad that they get killed by their peers because shit like that happens too. That's why that always made me really angry because it's like, first of all, I didn't have a fucking choice to end up this way. I am this way because I am a product of the environment that I grew up in. So as well-intentioned as those people were, there's still that part of me that just wants to be like, don't ever fucking say that to another child because you don't know you have no idea what they're going through. And I think part of the reason that is, and that ties in very closely with number five, is that idea of you should spend more time with people your age. 
Because a lot of times, most of our childhood activities and when we're told to go be a child, a lot of that often involves our playmates, our cohorts, our peers, other people, our age. There is two pieces to it, I'd say. You know, there's the part where it's you should participate in things with other people your age so you can have those experiences. And then there's also the part that Ivy was talking about, which is also partially the more controlling, the idea that I'm going to force you to be a child or you should do this and I'm going to force my idea upon you as to what a childhood looks like. And that's part of the reason that gets rallied against so much. And that's part of why Ivy gets angry so much is because what you're doing when you're forcing that kid to be a child is you're stripping away their control. You're trying to take their control. You're trying to threaten that control. And again, like I said, the only way most of us survived a traumatic childhood was by trusting ourselves and being in control of ourselves. And just as you wouldn't want to be shoved off the roof to prove you could fly, the child doesn't want that control ripped from them so that they can be a child. And then tying that into where I was going, the other part of that is spending time with people your age. And as Ivy pointed out in her situation, that was a very extreme one. She doesn't fit in with them. And even on a less extreme, I found that I did not fit in with my peers until I was well into my 30s. All of these experiences that other kids were going through, that other young adults were going through, that other adolescents were going through, they didn't make sense. And I, and I was autistic as a child even, obviously, and so I had difficulty interacting. But part of this too was kids couldn't relate to the same things I could. And so I remember having one really good friend as a young child, you know, around, I would say, the four, five, six, seven, eight-year-old range, my really good friend. And the reason we were really good friends is because she came from a traumatic home too. And so we could relate to one another. So when we talked about being afraid of our mothers or being afraid of being hurt or being hungry because there was no food in the house, we didn't get weird looks. What we got was understanding. And that's often not something you get from your peer group when you do come from a traumatic home or a dysfunctional childhood, they don't understand. They don't get this. I, I remember as an adolescent, I had just recently gotten pulled out of school and I was still trying to talk to one of my friends and she was on the phone with me and she was talking about, I don't even know what, some boy or some assignment. And I was so frustrated with her because I was trying to do laundry and I still had to get the dishes done and mom was waking up and I was going to have to deal with her. And I was just so fed up with her because what she said had nothing to do with my reality. Boys and school assignments and whether or not somebody liked me or I might fit in was bullshit to me. It had nothing to do with my life. My life was survival and my life was being an adult. And I found that all the way, like I said, up until my 30s, I did not fit in with my peer group because they weren't mature enough yet. Yes, I was too mature for my age because I had to be. And so there were all these other kids that are very much immature because they weren't forced to, and I couldn't interact with them. And sometimes that ends up like Ivy with a very traumatic situation. Sometimes it's just you don't fit in well. But that goes right hand in hand. You should spend more time with people your age. Did you get that particular message, Ivy, as well? Yeah, I did. And I had pretty much the same experience that unless it was another person my age who was going through some shit. And I did have like a couple friends like that, um, but they were from our hometown and I didn't live anywhere near there at that point. So for, for me, I did get a lot of that, but it was more just annoying for me to be around people my age 
because they, like you said, they didn't relate and I couldn't relate to them. I think where I felt it the most was in romantic relationships, which was, you know, not just you need to be spending more time with people your own age, but you should really be dating people your own age. The men that I was attracted to were on average about 10 to 20 years older than me. And that didn't change until I was 30. I, I think I dated one person before that that was about the same age as me. Calvin's the first person that I've been involved with for a long time that is my age. Because when I was in my teens and my 20s, boys and men my own age, I had nothing in common with them. I didn't want to go out and do the sorts of activities they wanted to do. I didn't relate to their life experiences. I thought they were immature little shits. I just didn't like them. And so it aggravated me when people were like, oh, you need to date people your own age. Well, who? Because none of them are worth dating. And this dude who's pushing 40, I have more in common with him than I do with with people my own age. And I think part of that also was growing up, I was mostly exposed to people who were older than me. I was in and out of school so much, I didn't have steady friendships or even the opportunity to build steady friendships with people my own age. So not only had I already been through a lot of things that had aged me quickly, but I also just didn't spend any time around people my own age. So what, what was there to relate to? Because I had been isolated in a very tiny world of my family where everybody was considerably older than me too. I think that's very true with the romantic relationships. My first marriage, I got married at 18 and he was 18 years older than me. And a lot of people thought I should have married younger. I shouldn't be marrying somebody, you know, that old. But at the time I married, and that's always how I say it, you know, when I got married at 18, I was actually already 40. I was older than he was emotionally not maybe not emotionally, but maturity wise at that point. My concerns were safety and housing. My concerns were getting insurance. My concerns were getting an education. My concerns were getting food on the table. I was very security oriented. I was very safety oriented. And those kinds of ideas aren't something other adolescents had. Other adolescents were at the point they were wanting to explore the world and push the bounds and take risks. And there was no way in hell I was going to take any risk. I was very secure. I was very 40-year-old. I was very middle-aged when I was a teenager. And I always say it wasn't until I was 23 that I finally turned 23, which really sucked for me because I finally figured out that I was safe enough to start acting out, but I was stuck in a lot of different choices, my marriage, my education, that really fucked my life up for various many reasons um, when that came about. But at the point that I married, it had to have been somebody older or it had to have been somebody that had gone through similar things and was as mature as I was because somebody that was willing to take risks, somebody that was a typical adolescent, somebody that was out to enjoy life and to live life to the fullest, I would have been scared to death of. And, and I I still am to some degree scared to death of those people because they threaten my safety. So I've been middle-aged for a long, long time. And speaking of age, and it's not a really good segue, but I'll just use that one to jump in. And this is number six on our list, which is the idea that you should always respect your elders. So this is kind of a turn from where we've been talking about. A lot of it was directed at us. And now this is directed towards how you should treat others around you. And this is an older one we hear a lot. And this is actually one that I'm very happy we are seeing more and more 
as damaging in our society. And I recently watched a TikTok video, I believe, where a woman was talking to her mother about, you know how you told me we should always respect our elders? And the mom was like, yeah, you know, that's just something we say in our culture. And she was like, you do realize that, and she threw out the statistic of how many kids that are sexually abused are sexually abused by caregivers that they know, by aunts, by uncles, by pastors, by babysitters, by people that are older than them that they're supposed to automatically respect. And I love that our culture is acknowledging that now because that, that's very true. The idea that you should just respect somebody because they're older is unsafe for any kid, <laughs> but it's very, very annoying, I would say also, for children that come from traumatic or dysfunctional households on, on the positive end of that. And it is, again, extremely dangerous on the extreme end of that because just trusting and just being obedient to somebody because they're older is going to land you in a world of hurt. It's going to get you molested. It's going to get you abused. It's going to get you neglected. It's going to get you a lot of things because we're just supposed to respect and be obedient. That was one that always really bothered me because, again, you know, when you are surrounded by inept adults and they're like, oh, you should always respect your elders and be obedient to them. And I'm like, well, I'm looking at the looking at my elders around me and I am honestly afraid of them. I am afraid of the choices that they make for themselves. And I don't want to do some of the things they're telling me that I have to do because that puts me in actual danger. Going back to that statistic that Autumn was talking about with like the sexual abuse, I experienced that firsthand being in situations were inappropriate with people that were close to me that I believed that I was supposed to be able to trust. And for a while I did, and I'm still dealing with repercussions from that as an adult. I think too, an aspect that goes along with that, that has been painful and difficult for me to deal with is people telling me, well, they're your parents. You have to forgive them. I don't have to do a single fucking thing. My mom, I chose to forgive because my mom at base for all of her flaws and all of her madness was a good, genuine person with a kind, loving heart that was too sensitive probably for this world, for the things that she went through. So my mom, I chose to forgive. She held herself accountable. She tried to make amends. She apologized. She owned up. She tried to do right. I don't have to forgive my father. I don't care that he's my father. I don't care that he's in his 70s now. It doesn't fucking matter. What he did to me, what he did to my mom, what he did to my sister, what he's done to so many people, both in his family and then to you know his patients, I have no obligation to forgive him. I have zero reason to respect him, zero reason to be obedient to him, zero reason to forgive him, and zero reason to talk to him. And it still really bothers me that there's been so many people that tell me, oh, you know, you really need to forgive him. He's still your father. No, he's not. Just because he donated some genetics does not make him a father. He's still a dumpster fire of a human being, and I owe him nothing. And again, that's the very extreme end of the scale where that leads to. And even on the less extreme end of the scale, let's take that to, again, that kid that has been through that traumatic household, that's been through that dysfunctional environment, and he's now somewhere safe. And those new caregivers, they say, well, you need to show me some respect. Again, think about what this kid has been through. Every 
adult in their life has disrespected them. Every adult in their life that's an honest-to-God caregiver has probably actively harmed them or put them in harm's way. What is there to respect about that? And for me, I have always been the kind of person that you need to earn my respect. I'm not going to treat you disrespectfully. I'm not going to treat you rudely. But any relationship I go into, I do not automatically respect anybody. I don't care if you're older. I don't care if you have more education. I don't care if you have more experience. I don't care if you're Mother Teresa. I do not automatically respect you. If you want my respect, you will earn it. And I think that's where many of these kids come from that come from these environments. You need to prove to that kid you're worthy of respect. Because part of what respect is, is trust. It's a little bit of trust that you're a decent human being, which most of us that come out of these environments have no trust of anybody. And another piece of it is an admiration for that person. And that's a little bit of what respect is, is saying, oh, that person is more. They have experience or they're older or they're wiser or they're more educated. It's a little piece of admiration in that respect. And how are you supposed to admire people that hurt you? How are you supposed to admire people that refuse to feed you? How are you supposed to admire people that beat you? And again, as that new caregiver, you may not be doing that to the kid, but that has been the child's experience. And so if you want that child to respect you, or even as an adult, you want that adult that's been through that environment to respect you, you've got to earn that respect. You've got to prove yourself. Because unfortunately, these patterns in our brains got written on the subconscious level, and they got written at such an age. And if you've been through that family home environment, they got written again and again and again and again. And so these patterns are etched deeply into our brains. And for me, I mean, being 40, I can say I still haven't gotten over all this. I still do not trust other humans, and I still do not automatically respect anybody, and I don't think I ever will. And so if you want that respect, you have to earn it. I'm just going to go ahead and jump into number seven on our list. And many of us, if I, I think they still use this, I don't know, but they use this a lot when I was a kid. I think they even used it when my mom was a kid. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. This is something that I am seeing shift in our culture, and I'm really happy to see that because for several generations that was the attitude that like oh physical abuse is the only form of abuse and words can't hurt you we're starting to recognize now culturally that that is very much a lie and that psychological abuse does just as much damage as physical abuse in its own way this is one of those ones that we have to look at in terms of generational healing and generational understanding because this is not something that I hear from people my own age or even a little bit older than me. This is a phrase that I only really ever heard from people who were considerably older than me. My mom's generation, my grandma's generation, where the attitude was that yelling at a kid doesn't matter. You know, calling somebody names, that doesn't matter. That that shouldn't hurt you. It can't do any harm to you. The only thing that can hurt you is actual physical damage. And that is very much a lie, but it's something that was part of our culture for multiple generations that we still are working on shifting. It's happening. Culturally, we're looking at things more and saying, no, that is still abuse. And that still does a lot of damage. And that still has long-term repercussions. And that maybe in some ways it has even more 
because it does embed itself, that kind of abuse embeds itself in your entire way of thinking and how you view the world and how you view yourself. It, it affects you in ways that just pure physical abuse and physical trauma does not affect you. There is some crossover, but there's something about the nature of psychological abuse, manipulation, gaslighting, and calling people names, and just being generally verbally very abusive, or even non-verbally. One of the things that my parents did a lot that had a huge impact on me was that if I did something that they didn't approve of or that they didn't want me to do, where most children would get, you know, some form of discipline from a parent. My parents would just pretend like I didn't exist for a few days. They wouldn't speak to me. They wouldn't look at me. It was like, I literally did not exist. That's not verbal abuse, but that is a form of psychological abuse and it did leave a real impact. So anytime somebody tells you that like, oh, those things aren't abuse. The only thing that can really damage you is real physical harm that's definitely a lie. And I'm really glad to see that culturally we're looking at that now and saying, no, 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 no. There are many forms of abuse. There's a whole spectrum of it and it has all sorts of repercussions and it, it, you know, goes through generations and there's all of this healing that needs to happen. And there's all of these cultural components that we are looking at now that we never looked at before. And we're saying, okay, things actually need to change. And it's one of the very, very few things that gives me the tiniest bit of faith in humanity still. I don't have much, but it's one of the few things that I look at and I'm like, thank God, at least people are now starting to look at things and being like, no, this is actually damaging, you know, in the same way that we're finally starting to look at mental health things and being like, no, that is just as valid as being through a traumatic car accident and having your pelvis shattered. It's a different kind of traumatic, but it's still traumatic. So it's, again, one of the tiny things that gives me just like the easiest, teensiest bit of faith that maybe humans aren't completely fucked. <laughs> I, I, I think this phrase, the sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. I always tie this phrase into my mind with the other one, which is I was taught, which is I'm rubber, you're glue. Whatever you say bounces off of me and sticks to you. And I think for me, both of these phrases are linked because they also gave you the idea that you had a choice in whether or not you were hurt. And I feel this is still one of those things out there that is is very damaging and I very much disagree with is that idea that other people can't hurt you if you let them. That that's a lie. That is a lie. You know, tell that to and I know people don't want to hear this, but I've heard of six-month-old babies being molested, sexually molested. And so you're telling me that six-month-old had that choice to not let that person hurt them? I'm sorry, that's not true. And it's the same way for most of us as children that went through this. We didn't have the choice. And so whether this is with your peers or whether this is with an adults, a lot of times we don't have the choice. We don't have the power to simply not be hurt by somebody else that's that's not a power we have if somebody is aiming to hurt you they can and they will if they try hard enough especially as a child because as a child you don't have any of the kind of coping skills you don't have any kind of understanding of the world and if you are in a dysfunctional traumatic environment you don't have people there to teach you these things so you have even less of a choice than somebody coming from a healthy loving normative environment 
in being hurt or not being hurt. Because when people say those things, your ego is so raw, your need is so big, of course you're going to be hurt. You don't have a choice in that. And trying to tell a child that they do have a choice in that, I think is very damaging. Yes, we do have some control over our emotions and we do have some control over our reactions. Again, if we are taught that, which we are not, but even with that control, others do have the potential to strike out, whether verbally or physically, and to harm us. And so I think that was one of the reasons those, the sticks and stones, as well as the rubber and glue one always annoyed me because it endowed this idea of control and power in me. I didn't have as an eight-year-old kid. I just didn't have it. I don't even have that now. I don't have the ability to simply choose not to be hurt or choose not to be pressed or choose not to whatever with my mental health. It's not a choice option that I have. I've not learned how to overcome neurochemistry. I've not come, you know, figure out how to change the very physiological nature of my brain. And I think when you teach children that, it also lends more shame to that. So these kids that are bullied in school or these kids that are abused, they take some of that responsibility onto themselves because you're telling them they had power to stop it and they chose not to. So apparently maybe they did want it. Maybe they did want to get hurt. And that's a very dangerous, very bad message. Um, the next one on our list, and this one is actually a shout out to our brother because this isn't one that Ivy and I were told as kids because Ivy and I were too scared to ever you know, get told this. And so this is one that we heard our brother get told a lot. And that as I have gotten older, I super appreciate this from him, even though I didn't at the time. And this one is sit down and shut up. Stop rocking the boat. So our older brother was the only one in the family that would bring the abuse, that would bring the neglect up, and he would say, this is not right. You know, why is Autumn not in school? Why is she taking care of the house? Why is mom sleeping all the time? You know, why is Ivy getting bullied at school? Why does she have eating problems? This is not okay. Something is wrong. And he would try to say this, and he would try to bring it up to the people who should care, which were our parents, and again, our grandmother, who I love her to death, but she was limited in both her generation and her own mental health and what she could have done for us. And so what was he told with that? Sit down and shut up. Stop rocking the boat. Even Ivy and I would beg him, please don't make a scene. Just be quiet. Let's just get through this Sunday dinner because we were scared. And I feel so bad for having contributed to that. Not that I could do anything. I mean, I was six years, five years younger than he was. Ivy's 11 years younger than he is. But that our parents would tell him that. And I feel like, and I don't know because he and I haven't talked about this over the years. I imagine he even got this from other people. I imagine he talked to teachers or other adults within our church and tried to say, you know, this is happening and it's not okay. And they told him, oh, it's, you know, it's just life or, well, that's family business and you shouldn't make a scene. I wish somebody had supported him in it. I really do. Because maybe if he did, maybe Ivy and I wouldn't have been through the trauma we did through. Maybe if my mom and dad were capable of listening, they would have stopped and gone, holy shit, what are we doing to our kids? Especially our mom, if she had been capable of hearing that. But all he got told was, sit down, shut up, stop rocking the boat, don't make a scene. And now I do think, though, that Ivy and I can relate to this as we grow older. So we weren't told this as a kid, 
But I do feel we have been told this either directly or implied as adults. Oh, we, you shouldn't, you know, don't rock the boat. Don't make a scene. Yeah, you've been through trauma, but, you know, that's it's it's a past thing. Have you been, did you receive this message at all, Ivy, either as a kid or an adult? Not as a kid, mostly because my way of trying to cope with things is just not being noticed for the most part. Just try to avoid our parents when they were being extra scary. And to some degree, I tried to avoid our brother too, because I just felt like as a child, I felt like he was making things worse. I was had kind of a weird relationship with our brother, but I also like Autumn have looked back on things now and like, he really is the only person that tried to change anything. He really is the only person that tried to shift anything or to save Autumn and I from the situation that we were in, but his hands were so tied and it wasn't his responsibility. And that's, I think to me, that was like part of it that was painful to watch too, that, that I see as painful in retrospect is that like it wasn't his responsibility to be trying to save his younger sisters from everything that was going on that put him in a really unfair spot. As an adult, I have gotten more of those messages myself and it has really pushed me away from people overall because I can't bring myself to conform in a lot of the ways that are expected. And I've had to make very different life choices than most people I know. Maybe I didn't have to. If I tried hard enough, I could have conformed, but it's not in me to do it because I did conform so much as a child and it did so much damage to me. And I don't want anybody to have that kind of control over my life anymore. Autonomy and freedom is so much more important to me now. And so when I have received those messages from people, it's been in regards to, you know, work dynamics, or you have to get along with this person because we have all these mutual friends, you know, things along those lines. I'm like, no, I don't. I don't have to like that person. I don't have to get along with them. I, I don't have to follow those rules. I can find something else to do. I can find other people to spend time with, or I can spend time on my own. I don't have to conform to what society says. I don't have to fit into the narrow confines of a particular ideology, like religiously or politically or whatever. I don't have to do anything. I'm not going to just sit down and shut up if you try to force something on me or if I see something that's really fucked up and I feel strongly about it, I'm going to say something about it. And I don't care if it rocks the boat and I don't care if it gives people a negative impression of me, it's, if I feel strongly enough about it, it's something that needs to be fucking said. That's part of why we started this podcast is because there are a lot of fucked things in the world and Autumn and I are tired of not rocking the boat. We wanted to rock the boat. And in some ways I did learn that from our brother. And even though I've had a difficult relationship with him over the years, there is a part of me that's incredibly thankful to him because he's the only fucking person that I learned that from. Because everybody else did sit down and shut up. Everybody else saw and they didn't question. They saw and they didn't do anything. They didn't try. Our brother is literally the only person, for better or worse, however it was that he tried to handle it, was not always in the best of ways, but he is the only fucking person that I saw try 
to change things. So that is one thing that I can take from him and that I can try to live by that same standard now. And I do try to do that now as an adult. If I see something fucked up, I do point it out. If I'm, if somebody's trying to force me to conform to something that I know is not right, or it's not right for me, I do rock the boat. I don't just sit down and shut up anymore. And I'm, I'm happy that he gave that to, to me as an example, even if it was hard for me at the time, even if I didn't understand it, even if I took it personally, even if it hurt sometimes the way that he did it, he's still the only one who tried. And I want to do that now, too. And, and I want to speak to that piece, too, because sometimes these, these caregiving children, what they're trying to do is make a difference. They're trying to make a stink. They're trying to rock the boat. So somebody acknowledges something is wrong, but they have no other tools with which to fix it. They have no words. They have no coping skills. They have nothing else. So they took what they had, which was the best that they had give, given, and they tried to use it. And unfortunately, you know, if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything's going to be treated like a nail. Well, if all the toolbox you'd been given by your parents or all the toolbox you've been given in your life is a hammer, you're going to have to do the best you can with that hammer. And probably people are going to get hurt by it. But if we allow these people to make that stink, if we allow these people to rock the boat, if somebody who is capable of stepping in and doing something can step in, then maybe they can teach that kid about screwdrivers and about crowbars and about ratchet sets and all the other amazing, wonderful tools that are out there that aren't hammered. And they can learn how to caregive and they can learn how to make changes and they can learn how to express without hurting other people. One of the other things that I want to mention really quick before we move on to the next thing is that when I look at our brother too and the role that he tried to fill, and I'm sure there are so many kids out there in similar family situations who were trying to fill that role and it is kind of clumsy for them. But one of the things that I look at now that I didn't see as a kid, but that I see so clearly as an adult is that in a lot of ways, our brother had to have been incredibly lonely. I didn't see that as a kid because he was popular in school and he had all these friends and everything. And so I thought like he, you know, he had this wonderful life outside of home. And now I look back on it and I'm like, no, he had all of those friends outside of the home probably because he needed someplace to run away to because he had nobody in the family. Nobody had his back. Absolutely nobody. And like Autumn and I at least had each other. We trauma bonded so hard that we kind of created like this little bubble of protection around ourselves where we supported each other and we protected each other as best we could without rocking the boat. But our brother had no one. He was incredibly alone within the family. Nobody supported him. Nobody had his back. And it was like everybody in the family, we were all just looking at him like, stop. Why are you being like this? You're making things so much worse. Everything was fine. It was tense, but it was fine. And then you come in and you create this big fight and it turns into all this chaos. And he, I have to imagine that for him, he's just in this hurricane of madness around him. And it had to be incredibly frustrating being the only person trying to put out sandbags to stop the floods from rising. And everybody else is looking at him and being like, no, we're drowning. It's fine. Like, how fucking lonely did that have to have been? So, like, 
it's been a long road for me getting to a spot where I could understand him and forgive a lot of things. But I look at him now, and even though we still don't have a whole lot of things in common, I do have a completely different perspective on him now. Cause I'm like, you were the only person trying to change things. Nobody had your back and you were still a kid yourself. At that time he was in his late teens. He was in his early twenties. I look at that now. And as somebody in my mid thirties, I'm like, that's still a baby. And it's not his responsibility. And he's not supposed to be having to worry about that, but he is because in his own way, he was trying to be a good big brother and instead, the entire family just alienated him in a lot of ways as though he did not exist as part of the family. And you'll notice a lot when we've been talking about it, we say, I imagine or I think. And the reason for that is, and this ties into number nine on our list that we hated hearing growing up was, I know. And that's something Ivy and I still don't do to this day is we don't say, I know. We have not heard it from our brother. And even if we heard it from our brother, we didn't experience it from his viewpoint. So all we can say is, I think, I imagine, based on what I've seen, based on what I've heard, this is my understanding of the situation. And I know it takes a lot more to say that. But the idea that I know what my brother went through or I know what anybody went through is infuriating to me because I was told that as a child, you know, you would try to express something on those few rare occasions that you decided to open up and they're like, oh, I know, I know. You don't fucking know. You do not fucking know. Even if I spilled my heart to you, even if we were intimate partners that were very much looped, even if we went through the exact same experience, you don't know because you are not me. You did not see it with my eyes. Ivy and I are very close. Ivy and I talk a lot. Ivy and I have a lot of understanding of one another. We went through most of the same experiences in the household. And I would never even dare to say I know about any of her experiences because I wasn't her. I didn't experience them from her perspective. And to say I know is very undermining. I think it's a phrase people throw out trying to be very validating, but it turns out to be very invalidating because you don't know. You did not feel the pain I felt as I felt it at the age I felt it. So you can guess, you can understand, you can empathize, you can sympathize, but you don't know. Yeah, I'm thinking about how how much I've actually learned about you just since, since we started this podcast. And like we trauma bonded really hard as kids. And I thought I knew you really well. And I thought that for a long time, I thought I knew you like the back of my hand. And when we started this podcast and we've been rehashing some of these stories and you and I have been in closer contact just in life because we interact more for the sake of the podcast, there were so many things that I did not know about you. There were so many things that happened in the family that I did not remember I, or I didn't know about or I interpreted it in a completely different way. And that's, to me, just further evidence of what I knew already is that you can't know what somebody else is going through because even within the same household, I don't imagine if you talk to each person that was part of our family in the family unit that we grew up in, if you talk to all of us, you would think that we all came from a completely different environment because the way that each of us interpreted things was so different. If you talk to my father about what things were like, I guarantee you, you'd get a really different story than the one that you get from me. 
If you talk to our brother, I'm sure his story in a lot of ways would be different. Autumn's and my stories don't line up all the time. And some of it's because even though we lived in the same household, we had a lot of the same experiences. We didn't experience all of the same things or because we were experiencing it from different perspectives or from different roles, we had a completely different perception of it. It's, it is impossible to truly know how anybody feels, even when you are closely looped with them, even when you spend every single day with them. It's just not possible. I mean, even physiologically and neurochemically, it is not possible. Even genetically, it's not possible because two people from the same family, they can have a completely different balance of things. They can have different genes that are activated to have you know, different disorders and stuff. You can have twins where one of them has a significant mental or has a significant physical or mental health problem and the other one's not affected by it. It is impossible to know how anybody else feels or know what anybody else went through. There are other ways to comfort and console somebody than trying to pretend as though you know. I think it's very, very important to use, you know, I understand or I would imagine or I have been through similar experiences. Because when you say you know, you're stepping into them and you're kind of you're taking their pain, you're taking their story, and you're trying to make it your own. And that's not what you want to do when you're validating somebody. You're wanting to offer that empathy, and that empathy comes in the form of understanding. And I think it was especially infuriating as a child and and as a young adult, you know, when you do start opening up to somebody and they tell you, oh, I know, I, I know how it is with moms. And they had a normative loving, healthy childhood, and they're telling you they know. And that is so invalidating because you're like, really? You you know? You know what that's like? You know what it's like when that feeling in your stomach because you haven't eaten for two days and you're scared that your sister might start getting ill again because all you have in the household is a can of tomatoes and three old stale statines and you have no idea when you're going to get more money from your parents if they decide to give you any at all or how you're going to go grocery shopping because you don't know how to drive yet. You know what that feels like. No, you don't even know what it's like to have ever been hungry. So don't tell me, you know, that was infuriating to me when I especially had somebody coming from a very loving, healthy area telling me they knew because I was like, oh, you don't fucking know. I, I will tell you, you don't fucking know. And it was a little less grating when somebody did come from a traumatic background and they could try to relate. But again, it's that idea of you understood, you could experience it. And I do know a lot of people that come from normative loving families, they have significant empathy and they can say, oh my God, I can understand what that would feel like. I can imagine that was so horrible for you. I can imagine how difficult that was. And that is a whole different message. And I can say, thank you for validating that in me. Thank you for understanding the experience I went through. But again, it's that understanding, not that knowledge. All right, and then the very last one we're going to talk today, the very last thing that we hated hearing when growing up in a dysfunctional or traumatic household, nothing. So we've kind of touched on this throughout some of the ones we've talked about today, but nothing, nothing. People knew. People saw. Teachers saw. People at church saw. Relatives saw. People heard. Our brother, as we said, would speak up and say things. and. Others would say nothing. 
they would not acknowledge it. They would give us these empty platitudes like we've talked about, I know how hard it is for you, or you're too mature, or you'll understand when you're older. They gave us these empty platitudes that had nothing to do with what was happening. They never said, what is going on in your household? Are you okay? Do you have food? I, I am hoping the stigma is being broken. I don't know. But sometimes I feel the stigma around talking to children about the potential of abuse or neglect in their houses is very similar to the stigma we have around suicide, that it's something shameful and we shouldn't, we shouldn't talk about it. And we might put the idea in their heads. And I do think there are definite ways you can talk to even young kids, even impressionable kids, about what is happening in their world in a non-leading way of being observant of how these kids are, of being observant of how the parents are interacting with these kids so that we can have some knowledge of what's happening and we can step in and protect them. Because I think of all of this, of all of these, the most damaging was nothing because at least the other phrases were something. At least the other phrases were acknowledging that something must have been happening. But nothing, when you said nothing at all and you just let this happen, it was like an approval. It was like, this is normal. This is okay. This is what we deserve. That's, that's what nothing said. And also nothing said, there is no hope for you because this is all there is. I think the other way in which nothing was very damaging was within the family unit too. No communication. I have a lot of memories of just tense, painful, uncomfortable silence because nobody wanted to talk about anything. Nobody wanted to deal with anything. Nobody wanted to confront anything. That's why when our brother would say something, it would explode because the rest of the time it was, we don't address this. We don't talk about it. We're not going to try to fix it. We'll just silently hate each other. And that is something that was incredibly damaging for me moving forward in life because I had to learn, actively seek out knowledge about how to communicate. And that has affected all of my relationships, my romantic relationships, my familial relationships, my platonic relationships, every single relationship that I've had, it work too. It's not learning how to communicate as a child did a lot of damage to me as an adult that I've had to work very, very hard to overcome and is still a challenge for me. But I look back on the experiences I had in my late teens, in my early 20s, in my first relationships, my first friendships, how I handled all of those things. And my go-to was always to just clam up send up walls, not say anything. And then when I'd had enough, I would just run away. That's what I did. Because I didn't know how to communicate. I didn't know that there was such a thing as conflict resolution. I didn't know that you could have a conversation and yet have it be uncomfortable. But I didn't know that you could have a conversation about conflict without it turning into a fight where everybody was in tears and everybody had been traumatized and everybody had been abused. I did not know that it was possible to have an uncomfortable conversation and find compromises and learn to understand each other. So nothing from the outside, from people that saw and didn't do anything, that was really detrimental. 
but there being nothing on the inside was really detrimental too. Cause even Autumn and I with our trauma bonding, there were so many things that were unspoken between us because it was not safe to talk about it because we didn't know how to address it. We were just trying to survive and protect each other. We didn't learn anything about communication and our, our parents were horrible examples of communication. They didn't communicate about anything. And our grandma was not great at it either because she also had some issues with communication and there were generational things and her own mental health stuff. And just, there was nobody to teach us. The one person who tried to communicate was our brother. And we both looked at him and it was like, well, that's scary. That's a scary way to try to deal with things. So that's, I think that's one of the most damaging things to me from our childhood and those messages that we got is that, you know, you don't talk about things. You just ignore it. You just pretend it's not happening until it explodes. I think that also ties into the after the fact as well. So I've talked a little bit about, you know, when that child gets into a, a healthier, safer situation with new caregivers or when that child is able to leave the home and they are a young adult and they're out in the world, that nothing is also damaging when we try to take away their voice. I'm not saying that we force the individual to try to relive the trauma or talk about the trauma, or go to therapy, but there is a lot of times when the person will try to talk about it and they will try to open up and they will try to process and they will be told, oh, we don't talk about that. That's in the past. We just need to let that go. We need to forget about that. And trauma is not that way. Trauma is etched in the body. Trauma is etched in the brain. And if you are unable to process it in whatever way that needs to be for you, it will be there forever. And you may learn to control it and you may learn to mutate it and contort it and still be functional with it. But you're probably never honestly going to be happy and you're probably never honestly going to be healthy if you're not able to process it. And so both inside and outside when that trauma is occurring, but again, after the fact of allowing that person to express that. And I did want to know on the, the idea of Ivy and I, I, I hadn't really thought about that for, about how we often didn't talk about anything. And I think about when we would see each other as we both had become an adults and we would bounce in and out of each other's lives. And I remember, I think it's got to be for the first decade Every time we ended up seeing each other, we would end up crying in the bathroom. And I don't even know what we said, if anything, if we would talk about much of anything, we would just cry a lot. And I remember also locking ourselves in the stall uh, bathroom at church during the church service and crying on the floor of the bathroom. And that became like a tradition for me and Ivy that we would just cry on the floor of the bathroom whenever we saw each other. And that was honestly how we started to process a lot of things and how we dealt with it when it was going on. But again, even during that, we said nothing because like Ivy said, we didn't know how to say it. So you really have to learn, you have to learn to speak. And I think that involves after the fact, helping that person learn to speak and allowing them that voice during the fact when you're inside, trying to learn those skills if possible. And on the outside, learning how to ask those questions, learning how to be observant in such a way that you can help the person that's going through the trauma. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I would also add too that, you know, from our personal experience as well is even when Autumn and I got to a point where we could talk about things and we started finding the words for expressing what we'd been through, 
still a huge portion of our relationship well into adulthood was all about the trauma that we'd been through. There was so much to process and we were so ill-equipped to do it that it really hasn't been until I would say like maybe the last year, maybe two years, where I've started to have a relationship with Autumn that is not just based in the trauma that we went through, where I feel like we know each other or getting to know each other really well as who we are today. Because one of the things that trauma does that people don't think about is that trauma keeps you stuck until you process it, until you find ways to cope with it and heal and figure your way through life, trauma keeps you stuck. And so one of the things that I'm most thankful for now in starting this podcast with Autumn, which is not something I I realized we would experience, is that I have a relationship with my sister now that is more than just trauma. I feel like I know who my sister is as who she is today. And I don't just think of her as being 15, 16, 17 years old. She is an adult and I am an adult and we are two grown women living lives that are that are authentic to ourselves and we're able to form a relationship now based on the people we have become and not just on the people that we were, on the children that we were stuck being and on the little adults that we were forced to be. Yes, <laughs> yes to all that. I think honestly, part of also what has allowed that to happen is the very fact that we weren't physically present with each other a lot through the years. We were further apart. We bounced off of each other. And I say that's important because I felt in that first decade that we had gotten out of the household, every time we were together, I would feel that neurochemical pull with her where her and I and our our bodies and our systems would almost pull us back to that trauma because that's where that relationship was and that's what our bodies knew. And so if we were together, that must be what we need to experience. And it would pull us in. And it was almost the physical separation that we had a lot from each other over the years that allowed us to speak and talk in a way that didn't pull us back to that childhood, that allowed us to start moving forward. And I actually... I told my sister like officially because that's how I am. I'm an official person. If I could, I'd have SOPs for my life and my house, but my boyfriend won't let me. I officially told her uh, a, a while back and I said, you know what? I, I release you. You know, I release you from everything. All of your obligations, this life, the next, all past lives, I release you. You are no obligation for my sister. You are no obligation for my friend. You are no obligation for whatever entanglement we have ever experienced I fully release you to be whatever you need to be. And if I will be present in your life, then I would love to be present in your life. But if I no longer need to be, I totally and fully accept that because you have no more obligations to me. And that is my way of saying to her that I love her as she is now for who she is, not for what she has done for me, not for who she was, not for as a child I needed to take care of, but that I acknowledged her as Ivy because that is who she is right now. And I fully and totally accepted that and I fully and totally accepted her choices. So I feel like we've gotten a little off track here at the end and a little cryful. So I'm going to kind of pull it back in. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Should I give our pluggables then? There we go. That's a very abrupt segue into things that don't bring tears. (laughs) At least I would hope not. I don't know why it would bring tears. So our pluggables, you can find us on 
Facebook, Instagram, TikTok <laughs> as, as Different Functional. You can find us at our website, www.differentfunctional.com, and you can find this podcast wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. We are also on Patreon as, if you can guess, Different Functional. So if you want some extra perks, you can go check that out and see what we have to offer. And if you are enjoying the podcast and you would like to support us in non-financial ways, it would it would just tickle us pink if you would rate, subscribe, review, do all that stuff, spread the word, tell your friends if you feel like they would benefit or they would enjoy this podcast. We really right now need help getting the word out there because we would love to get to a point where we could really focus on this podcast more, put out more regular episodes, have more content than just the, the podcast, be able to offer some services like we would really love to expand on this so if you're enjoying the podcast you want to see it get better you want to see what else we we can do please just get the word out there tell people tell people about us so that we can uh, we can get a little more exposure and hopefully build something really amazing from this podcast and from the business because that's we have a lot of things that we would love to do and high hopes for the future Definitely high hopes for the future. So thank you for joining us today as we looked at the 10 things we very much hated hearing when growing up in a traumatic or dysfunctional childhood. And the next episode, we're actually going to grow up a little bit and talk about the 10 things we hate being told as adults. So join us for that next time around. And until then, remember, as always, different does not mean defective. Mom.